Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. To some extent, the rhythm of our lives is marked by the changes in certain aisles at the grocery store. Sometime in July, displays of flags and fireworks give way to ghosts and skeletons and candy and candy and more candy. The National Retail Foundation's annual Halloween Consumer Survey, conducted by Prosper Insights and Analytics, reveals that total Halloween spending in 2022 is expected to reach a record $10.6 billion, exceeding last year's record of $10.1 billion. Post-pandemic, it appears that Halloween is back in a big way. So, what are Americans spending all that money on? Where do we spend it? And most importantly, what are the most popular costumes expected to be this year? The definitive data source for all things Halloween is that survey, and we are lucky to have National Retail Federation Senior Director of Industry and Consumer Insights, Catherine Cullen, to take us house to house into the data. Good morning, Catherine, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Excited to talk about all the spooky, scary, and fun aspects of Halloween this year. And happy Halloween to you, by the way. Uh, happy Halloween. Uh, can, can, can you start by telling us a little bit about how long the, the National Re- Retail Federation has been doing this survey, and why does this fall into part of your mission? Absolutely. Well, NRF, as you are probably aware, is the world's largest uh, retail association. And as part of what we do, we really keep a pulse on how people are shopping because we're all shoppers. We all participate in retail and we're all part of that broader story of what's going on in the industry. Uh, As part of that, we track basically every major consumer spending event from graduation and Easter through Halloween and the winter holidays. And we've been conducting this specific survey for well over a decade. I believe the first time we did it was in 2005. And we go out to about 7,000 adults. So that's a lot of people celebrating Halloween, telling us what they're doing. And we're excited to share some of the findings with you today. As Roger said in the intro, the spending for Halloween in 2022 is expected to reach a record $10.6 billion. Can you help put that figure into context? How has Halloween spending grown over the last 20 years, and, and how is Halloween compared to others? Certainly. Well, you mentioned this year is a record in terms of expected spending. It's up from last year when we saw Halloween spending um, expected to come in at around $10.1 billion. And for context, this is about three times as as much as we expected consumers to spend on the holiday in 2005. So we've really seen uh, growth and the popularity of Halloween, um, particularly actually among the adult segment. But even though $10.6 billion is a large number and is hitting a new record for us this year, Um, Halloween is different from other holidays. It's not a gift-giving occasion. Um, And gift-giving really drives a lot of spending. So Halloween does still fall behind other holidays like Christmas, Hanukkah, uh, Kwanzaa, as well as Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Valentine's Day. Uh, Consumers are really spending on themselves, on their kids, and of course, on lots of candy, but they're not buying gifts, which tend to be a big driver of spending for the other major events in the year. So just out of curiosity, I'm sure that the December holidays, you know, are far and away number one. Uh, Is Valentine's Day number two? 
Valentine's Day comes in at uh, under number five. It's in the bottom. Uh, towards, <laughs> oh. I believe about seven or, or eight, and Halloween is about uh, ten. So uh, Mother's Day is actually, after the winter holidays, uh, one of the biggest spending areas. So people know that mom needs to stay happy, and they spend uh, accordingly yes. for the event. And we do love our mothers. Uh, how has or how much does an average household spend? You discussed how many adults you talked with, but but what have they been saying? Uh, consumers expect to spend around $100 on average uh, for Halloween-related uh, decorations, costumes, candy, and greeting cards, which are a category. Um, and just for context, this is about what people plan to spend last year. But the reason we're seeing that big record number of total spending is because more people are participating in the holiday this year. About 69% plan to celebrate Halloween, uh, which is up from 65% last year and compared to a dip of about 58% in 2020. Um, but we're really back to a pre-pandemic level of participation. And uh, we're, you know, again, seeing that record total spending. And, and while I'm sure that those statistics don't include bar tabs, can you share with us a little bit about the top ways that people do plan to celebrate? Absolutely, yes. Uh, people people might not do a great job of estimating uh, what their bar tabs are going to be, uh, but the most popular ways to celebrate Halloween are, of course, handing out candy. Candy, whether you're an adult, a parent, or a child, is really a central part of the holiday. Uh, followed by decorating uh, homes and yards. And this is something during the pandemic we really saw to take off um, as people were stuck at home. Uh, people put a lot of money, uh, a lot of focus into their uh, yard and house decorations. And that trend has really continued. And uh, finally, uh, dressing up in costume. Uh, again, you can't celebrate Halloween without costumes. And so that's the um, other big way people will be celebrating and spending this year. You have data about popular costume choices in three categories. There's adults, children's, and pets. Can you share with us what some of that data tells us? Certainly. Um, well, first of all, I know I talked about the growth in Halloween spending, and a lot of that has been driven by costumes. Uh, just for context, in 2012, so 10 years ago, people expected to spend just under $3 billion on costumes, and this year it's up to $3.6 billion. And when we think about what's happened during that time, um, you know, we've really seen this shift where Halloween is not just a holiday for kids um, and families, it's also a holiday for young adults. Uh, so we've seen a lot of participation from that segment, as well as uh, growth in social media, and particularly video or picture-based platforms like TikTok, Pinterest, um, Instagram, or YouTube. All of that has created ways for consumers to showcase their costume creativity um, and share it with broader audiences as well as get inspiration. So all of a sudden there's a lot more focus on what you're going to be, how you're gonna share it, and how you're gonna bring that Halloween joy to people around you through social platforms. Um, I actually think uh, the rise in pet costumes is actually a great example of this. Uh, we are seeing people sharing images of their pets dressed up 
all over social media. Um, and I have a hard time believing that trend would have taken off without uh, some of the popularity in these apps. And one of the remarkable things when I looked at the data that you, you guys put out was that, you know, the, the total costume spending was $3.6 billion. Of that, 1.7 was was for kids, 0.7 was for adults, and 1.2 was for pets. And what I sort of figured out quickly was that if you add uh, adults and pets, it's more than we spend on kids' costumes. And we think of this holiday as a kid costume <laughs> holiday. Yes, but for a lot of people, pets are... Are their kids. Are, are there kids or are another sibling for their kid? Um, and we're seeing a lot of fun pet costumes out there. Um, a popular one is actually to dress your pet up as a hot dog or a pumpkin. Um, and I've seen actually some really cute family costumes where everyone coordinates from the parents to the kids down to uh, the dog or cat. So you talked about some of the, the costumes that pets have. Can What's... What are you seeing as far as popularity for children's costumes this year? Certainly. You know, it's interesting because top costumes, whether we're talking about kids or adults, have really stayed pretty stable, even uh, with all the other uh, things that have changed around Halloween. It, it turns out that dressing up as a princess or a witch or a superhero uh, really doesn't go out of style. Um, I will say over the last decade, you know, we have seen um, superheroes have continued to climb up and every year, you know, we may see, um, you know, a top uh, toy or game uh, pop up into the top 20 a few years ago. It was Fortnite. Um, but it, overall, those top costumes do stay pretty stable and uh, kids uh, really do gravitate to some of those uh, consistent things that have been, you know, in vogue over the last decade. And it's interesting when you look at that list and you think about superheroes, some of those costumes are, of course, these basically the same ones that, you know, I saw, you know, 50, 60 years ago when I was a kid. But some of them are sort of social media or sort of Hollywood driven. In other words, they are sort of copyrighted characters, if you will, the, the, the superheroes. We, 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 I guess that's really been a trend over the last 10 years or so has been as the superhero influence has grown in Hollywood. I think that's a great point. And yes, I think it's uh, good to remember that, uh, you know, there's there's more superheroes, it feels like, to choose from uh, than maybe there were a decade ago. I, I know this year, at least in shopping my local stores, I'm seeing um, a lot of Wakanda costumes, a lot of super, um, Spider-Man costumes, um, and those kinds of characters that have really, you know, captured the imaginations of younger consumers. Um, and then on the, you know, also things like Encanto, I've seen it being very popular um, as well as it, it seems like um, the Frozen trend is, is not going to go away. But princesses of, of all uh, sorts and, and from all stories are really popular as well this year. As we were just talking, you know, a lot of the inspiration for kids costumes is from Hollywood. What are you seeing as far as the adult costumes? What are the most popular and where do inspiration come for the, from those? Absolutely. Um, again, like we see with kids, the top costumes from adults do stay pretty stable. It's things like witches, vampires, um, some superheroes uh, and, and ghosts, things like that. Of course, you know, when you are talking about people celebrating Halloween, we have to remember uh, young adults, uh, those 
they may be turning much more, we know they're turning much more to social media. They may be thinking about current events in terms of uh, dressing up. So there's, there certainly is a lot of uh, variety when we look at costumes. I'm sure anyone who is out either this weekend or who will be trick-or-treating tonight is going to see a lot of great um, costumes out there drawing inspiration from a lot of different sources. That said, those top costumes really do uh, stay pretty consistent year to year. I happened to be in West Hollywood this weekend and saw costumes that I had never imagined before, but then again, that was West Hollywood. Um, let me ask you about where, has there been a change in the nature of the sources where people are buying you know, Halloween kinds of goods, you know, either candies or costumes or, or things like that? Uh, we have really seen a lot of focus, of course, on specialty Halloween shops. And, and actually, younger consumers under the age of 25, that's a top destination for them, uh, not just to buy their costume, but to look for inspiration. Um, of course, online, whether that's shopping your favorite retailer online rather than in store, um, but also discount stores um, have become kind of a big part of the, of the holiday this year. Consumers have realized that it's a place you can often find great deals on candy, but also, um, you know, things for your own DIY costume or even, you know, a discounted uh, you know, character costume, you might be there as well. So consumers, you know, are definitely turning to a variety of places to shop for their Halloween items, uh, but those are the, the top three online at discount retailers and, of course, um, the many specialty stores that pop up during this time. One of the things I noticed on the website, and by the way, the National Retail Federation website has a lot of uh, great data that uh, that that we some of which you've been sharing with us today. But when I when we looked at the website over the weekend, you had one separate article called Three Ways Gen Z is Celebrating Halloween this this year." And one of the, the one of the things you point out is that younger consumers really have more plans for Halloween than any other group. I suspect they have more plans generally than any other group. But can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing from Gen Zers? Certainly, this is a really exciting group to watch. And a lot of the growth in spending and celebrations over the last decade has come from young adults. First millennials and now this newer generation, Gen Z, who have really turned this into a holiday, not just for kids, but also for grownups. It's important to know, though, that this segment did take a bit of a backseat during the pandemic. Um, still popular, but concerns around COVID and social distancing guidelines you know, put a little bit of a damper on things like Halloween parties or bar crawls or, or even haunted houses. And instead, we saw, you know, families uh, who could often celebrate the holiday in more socially distanced ways continue their participation. But this younger group was like, hmm, maybe I will take a little bit of a pause this year and, and you know, a couple years of the pandemic. This year, they are back in full force. So we're seeing about 87% of this uh, 18 to 24 year old group celebrating Halloween this year. Uh, just for reference, that's up from about 75% in 2020. So a big jump back to pre-pandemic norms. And uh, this group is, is very much into costumes. They're heavily influenced by social media. Uh, of course, TikTok, they're about three times as likely to look for costume ideas on TikTok compared to the average adult celebrating Halloween. But they're also looking to things like Instagram, uh, YouTube, and, and Pinterest, as well as I mentioned, you know, heading into stores itself. So they're actively engaged in the holiday. They're very focused on their costumes. And um, I 
expect to see a lot of creativity. I have already over the weekend, but also today, um, you know, looking at social channels and, and seeing what people have chosen to dress up as. With Halloween, you know, concluding today, I suspect that tomorrow we will go into the store and see Christmas decorations. What is projected for spending for Christmas this year? Is it, incre- is it projected to increase as well? Um, well, for many uh, stores and, and for many consumers, uh, the holiday season has already started. We saw a lot of deals and a lot of stores shift their focus um, in October, if not towards the end of September. Um, in terms of what people are planning to spend, uh, we will be releasing that data uh, later this week, in fact. Uh, so please uh, check back with us. We'll be happy to share it at that point. Uh, but uh, we'll be releasing our forecast for the season uh, on Thursday. Yeah, we, did, we don't mean to blindside you, but we are sort of fascinated by this topic, and we may well try to get you to come back and talk to us about it in a couple of weeks, <laughs> if that would be possible. Wonderful. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all so much for having me on. Well, we've been having a Halloween theme this morning, and we're going to continue with that. Haunt owners nationwide work day and night with the end goal to make you scream. In fact, most haunted house owners work on their attractions year-round. Haunted house owners attend a full schedule of industry events throughout the year, such as trade shows, conventions, learning seminars, and more. Larry Kirshner, founder and president of Haunt World, spends time with us this morning to give us a behind-the-screams glimpse into this industry. Larry, thank you for joining us on Mountain Money this morning. Oh, hey, how's it going? It's probably the busiest day of his year. I'm really glad he took time to spend time with us. I figured you may have been up late last night as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, haunted houses across the country would have been, most of them anyway, would have been open last night. There was one in my household who attended it. So let's just start with how did you yourself become involved with haunted houses? What drew you in and how long have you worked in this industry? Well, I think uh, a lot of people who uh, like the horror sci-fi genre, you know, uh, and if you also have a creative mind, you think about like making your own movies, you think about making, you know, your own haunted house. Um, you probably play with the, you know, action figures and toys like I did. And, um, you know, when you think about like, um, playing with, uh, like say Planet of the Ape dolls, you know, like I had when I was a kid, you know, you create your own, like, you know, here's what happens today, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And, uh, so I was always just a big fan of like, you know, Godzilla to Dracula to Frankenstein, Wolfman, and, uh, pretty much like anything horror, you know, and I did my uh, first haunted house when I was like four, it was in the basement of the house and we charged people a quarter to go through it and made walls out of blankets. And, uh, I don't know, it just was fun, but I always imagined myself like making movies and, uh, kind of detoured into the uh, haunted house world. Well, in a sense, it's it's not that different than making movies, I take it. I mean, you are trying to take your audience into an adventure that takes them out of their uh, current day-to-day reality into a different reality. Talk to us, though, a little bit about, you know, what are the kinds of components we would see in a typical house, haunted house? I take it it's not, you know, blankets anymore. We've moved on to something somewhat more sophisticated. Yeah, you know, uh, when I first built, like, 
my first commercial haunted house, when you go from there to today, you know, many, many, many things have changed. Um, you know, back in the early days of, you know, professional haunted houses, I think mostly they just started off as like charity attractions, you know, to raise money for a charity. And they graduated to being a commercial industry. And today, uh, you know, the haunted house industry, um, I would credit with single-handedly making Halloween what it is today because Halloween today is a multi-billion dollar industry, but it was mostly back in the 90s, you know, considered a holiday for, you know, just trick-or-treating and stuff. And um, the professional haunted house industry kind of commercialized Halloween. And then what they did was just a phenomenon is they started advertising it. And so they would open up in late September. They would pummel the radio waves with uh, with ads. And it's sort of like uh, taking a life of its own. It's branched off. You have pumpkin patches, but they're not pumpkin patches anymore. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're attractions for families. Or you have jack-o'-lantern festivals. You have zoos that are doing, you know, Halloween things and amusement parks. And it's just like branched out into this huge commercialized holiday that it never was uh, back in the late 1990s. But l let me take you back. When I go into a typical haunted house, t talk to me about some of the kinds of things that will scare me. Well, what kinds of effects do they use? What kind of props do they use? How does it work? Well, uh, you know, that was a funny thing, too, because back in you know the early 2000s, late 1990s, whatever, they were completely actor-driven, you know? So all the scares were actor-driven. So there was no animatronics or anything. And then, you know, slowly but surely, animatronics crept their way into the haunted house industry, first just by, like, making skeletons talk and tell you creepy, you know, things, to now, like, animations that, you know, jump out, jump up, jump, under your feet, over your feet, air cannons explode. Um, to, to like, people have like electronic components in their hands where it looks like you have like a cattle prodder that zaps them, you know? <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, be, when you think about like technology, and I'll give you a perfect example, in the darkness haunted house here in St. Louis, we have like display cases and, um, you know, I have mostly like toys that I've collected that you can look at. But one of the most strangest things in there is a loop. It's an endless loop cassette tape. And people probably don't understand, like, what is that doing in there? You know, it's like, well, because when we first started our first on house, we used to buy 120 minute long uh, tapes, you know, and we would record the audio over and over and over and over again and then flip it on the backside recorder. So, like, when it would run out, you would run over to the audio, <laughs> you know, flip the tape and then play it. And then we graduated to, you know, like, Endless Loop, where they would just play forever and you'd have to have these little cassette players to, you know, where you could play it off a DVD to, you know, now you have pre-amped uh, audio players. And when you have pre-amped audio players, you can actually trigger sounds, kind of like when you go to the movies, you know, the thing that really scares you is like sudden loud noises. And you could do that in a haunted house now. I mean, these are all things like where you've just taken these steps, you know, to get upstairs and, uh, you know, having like electronic components, you can actually have ghosts in your haunted house now, for example, 
because you can actually like play them. You know, you could get a projector back in the early 2000s and play something, but how do you make it play continuously? How do you make it trigger? And all these things have become very affordable. Uh, what's really crazy is like when you think about a major a theme park ride, mm. you know, uh, it seemed unattainable to do those kinds of effects, and now it's actually really cheap. So... I, as I was researching haunted houses and haunted attractions, I noticed that Haunt World has been publishing its top 13 scariest haunted houses for nearly two decades. What, like, who who goes in and ranks? You know, who, is it a secret shopper type information, or how um, how do these rankings come about? Well, you know, it's really crazy because you know the very first year that we ever put out a top 13 list, you know, it was mainly based on. <clears throat> you know, like Haunt World had a fright, uh, a message board, a forum, and you would learn about uh, other haunted houses. And then we started producing videos where we would have collections where people would send us footage of their haunts and we would rate them based on like the footage that we got um, to like traveling around the country. And that's actually a big phenomenon now is like, uh, it's kind of like with escape rooms as well. Like people want to go visit the best ones. And when you think about Universal Studios Horror Nights, you know, how did that get so big so fast? You know, <clears throat> it's because people think, hey, I can go see something Halloween that I can't see near me. And that pretty much is the case uh, for haunted houses. People are willing to travel the whole entire country to find attractions, you know, that are second to none. And the very first list we ever produced, we had a home haunt on there called Haunted Overload. And the guy had a home haunted house. And we, we, it was so insane that we put it on our top 13 haunts to visit. And then in 2022, we've ranked that haunted house one of the best that's ever been. And it's a professional haunted house. And I think that's also another avenue that people got into the haunted house industry is from home haunting. Well, just like other industries, uh, there's a trade show uh, for haunted houses. I imagine the bar scene is quite something. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about um, uh, the show. Uh, where is it and what, what would I find if I went to visit other than interesting costumes? Well, you know, that's uh, another interesting story because uh, back in 1994, when I first, the first year of the darkness, our haunted house opened, which is now its 29th year, um, before I ever had ever opened it, I had heard about this like retail Halloween retail show, and it was in Chicago at the Rosemont. And um, and on a whim, I just drove up there and went to it. I was probably one of the first haunted house owners ever to go to it, and it was mostly you know just Halloween costumes and stuff like that. And there was a few people that made props. And then as haunted houses started finding out about it, slowly but surely there became more and more prop companies that would go there. And then eventually uh, the haunted house side of it got so big that it needed its own show. And so it split off from the retail show and started its own show. And it actually happens to be here in St. Louis. And I'll tell you a funny story because it's true. The very first year it was in St. Louis, um, um, you might laugh when I tell you this, but I went to the concession stand and uh, and I tried to buy a hot dog and uh, they said they didn't have any. I said, what about a hamburger? They said they don't have any. 
And I said, well, what do you have? They said, we have uh, RC Cola. <laughs> and I was like, what in the world is going on here? You're supposed to be a major convention center. This is embarrassing, you know, that the show comes to St. Louis and you, you know. And they said, well, I'll be honest, we were told it was going to be a very small show. Hmm. And, um, and what they found was when they started this haunted house show is that every theme park in the country, right, it doesn't matter. Halloween is not popular um, as a trick-or-treat like the way it is in, in the United States. It's The popularity of Halloween is associated with haunted houses. So, like, think about it. Virtually every theme park in the United in the entire world is doing haunted houses. So this show started the first year with, like, 50,000 square feet, and they were expecting, a, you know, less than 1,000 people, and 5,000 people showed up. And today, the show now takes the entire convention center. I'm talking about, like, you know, 400,000 square feet. And about 11,000 people come from all over the world. And that's how big the the industry is. And when you think about, like, Six Flags, for example, or uh, some theme parks, like, they might not even still be in business if it wasn't for Halloween. Halloween is their biggest moneymaker now. And so it's become very huge, very popular with uh, the general public as a way to celebrate Halloween. Haunted attractions have their own kind of sense of business practices and timelines and everything else. And one of the things that I found, Haunt World magazine produced an entire magazine devoted to safety in a haunted house. And if you think about it, you know, you have your customers groping around in the dark, can't be quite um, as easy to be able to make sure everyone's safe. What topics does this issue cover? What do haunted house owners need to keep in mind uh, when they start putting things together? Well, you know, from my standpoint, the thing that I'm always afraid of in the haunted house industry is new people, people who start new haunted houses. Because um, a lot of times when it comes to haunted house safety, you learn as you go, you know, you... uh, Oh man, I didn't see that coming. You know, we got to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, you, you know, and you just kind of like uh, learn from experience. So uh, that's how you started off, like back in the 90s and 2000s. You know, just kind of like, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's not safe. But today you have things like YouTube and Facebook, and you have uh, a whole community where. Let's be honest, if you go back to the year, say, 1994, when I started The Darkness, um, you know, long distance costs money, you know, and now you can actually get on your phone and you're talking to somebody in China and you're looking at them, right? It's very Star Trek-ish, right? And so the world's gotten a lot smaller, and so people are able to communicate and learn from each other. So our priority has always been, you know, to try to promote safety, um, obviously some of the main things you got to be worried about is like, you know, starting a fire, for example, um, you know, fire safety. Um, if you're on a hay ride, you know, it's like you got people riding in a wagon, most injuries, like serious injuries in a haunted house, uh, have happened on hay rides where hay ride wagons have, you know, flipped over or something. So, um, you know, we make it a priority to promote that. And it's also like promoting to the people coming. It's like a haunted house owner does not know that somebody has asthma, for example, right? So 
So uh, a lot of it is just warning people that, hey, you have strobe lights. Strobe lights can cause seizures, right? Uh, asthma, you know, or uh, heart conditions or any of those kinds of things. So really the main safety thing is warning your customers about the experience so they can make educated decisions on coming or not coming. I want to talk a little bit about economics as a business show. Haunted houses, I take it, are only open a few months a year. Um, there's obviously a significant investment in props and gear and things like that. Talk to us a little bit about the, the kinds of money it takes to open a haunted house and how do, do, do many of these businesses do something else during other parts of the year? You know, that's a, a very interesting question because we go back to the haunted house trade show. The very first year that, you know, it operated, it was just strictly, you know, like, a handful of main vendors that made animations and props and things. And um, today it's like axe throwing, uh, it's escape rooms, it's Christmas light show. It actually has a huge element of Christmas to it. Um, it's a totally different, you know, like environment now in the haunted house industry. Uh, the escape room industry, you know, got really popular um, about, you know, five, six years ago. And I said then um, that the haunted house industry would literally take it over. And they did. They took it over because they had a better understanding of theming and showmanship, right? And so when you think about escape rooms, um, six years ago, and one of the most popular ones was called Zombie in a Room. It was just a room, and it was an actor with a bad, you know, makeup job. And you just open boxes and locks. And when you think about escape rooms now, they're super sophisticated and elaborate and storytelling and so on and so forth. So haunted house owners have really uh, gone from this like, hey, maybe I did this in my backyard. Maybe I did this in my community center. To now I've got this massive attraction. Now I've started axe throwing facilities and escape rooms. And some people have done uh, paintball facilities and uh, some people have opened family fun centers. I mean, it's just like all over the board. But yeah, um, this is a truth statement too. Is like back in 1994 or 2000, the most common question asked at the trade show was, "What do you do for a living? Like, what do you do for real?" You know. And I mean, every I was like the only person that said, "Oh no, this is all I do." You know, because we also started building attractions. Uh, for all the theme parks. We were the company that was building them for the theme parks. And But the most common thing, well, I'm, I'm a, you know, an accountant. I'm a, you know, a firefighter. I'm a policeman, whatever, right? And now nobody asks that question because haunted houses, they've expanded out of the Halloween season. So people open for Krampus. Some people open for Valentine. Some people even open for St. Patrick's Day. They do special events. But they've branched off and taken the things that they've learned from running haunted houses and building them and done other kinds of attractions that are open year round. One of the things that it causes me to think about as these haunted houses became more attractions, I know the one in Salt Lake that's on the top 13 list, Fear Factory, has even a zip line. They're like a whole city block. How does employment work with regards to staffing in a haunted house? Like how many people typically work in a haunted house? Are they actors? Are you looking for certain skill sets? Um, how does how does that all go? 
Well, you know, I would say pre-COVID, um, it was really easy to get people to work at a haunted house because um, just the nature of it, like, you know, the people who like Halloween, you know, people who like dressing up and being monsters. When you think of cosplay, now, you know, it's like everybody, you know, there's a whole community of people who just like dressing up and being someone else. Um, it was very popular. I mean, since COVID, it's been more difficult. Um, but you know what's crazy is like uh, a fast food restaurant can't get three people to work, so they close, right? And a haunted house is still able to get you know hundreds of people, but not as many as you would you really need. So I would say it's becoming very difficult for all haunted houses to fill every position. But uh, we're still getting a lot more than, you know, the normal, you know, jobs that teenagers would work, you know, which is like, you know, a fast food restaurant or something like that. But a haunted house, like I, I have a haunted house it, it, between people, parking cars, the actors, the security, tractor drivers to everything in between. You know, we need like 150, you know, people to operate, you know, and. And just missing one of them hurts. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to cover at a haunted house. Um, and that's one of the things I, I've said before in the past is, like, if you if you learn, if you master how to operate a haunted house, you're a jack of all trades. Because most haunted houses deal with parking. They deal with crowd control. They deal with security. They deal with hiring, firing. They deal with... Uh, adding new attractions, building attractions, maintenance. They deal with concession stands or gift stores. I mean, you really become a jack of all trades. You probably could run almost anything. We're Jack O'Leonard, as Roger just said. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for spending time with us. We've been speaking with Larry Kirshner, founder and president of Haunt World. You've definitely given us an insight into a world many do not know much about. Larry, thank you for joining Mountain Money. Hey, no problem. Thank you. The 12th annual Live PC Give PC takes place this year on Friday, November 4th. This day of giving in Park City and Summit County is a critical fundraiser for local nonprofits. We have this morning joining us from the Park City Community Foundation, Joel Zaro, President and CEO, and Diego Zaguerra, Vice President of Equity and Impact, to share with us some of the behind the scene operations of Live PC, Give PC. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Morning. Let's, uh, let's begin with a, a little bit of history. Joel, this is the 12th annual Live PC, Give PC. Can you talk about the inception of this event and the importance of community days for nonprofits across the nation? Sure. It's an enormously important day for the Community Foundation and the nonprofit community in Park City. Uh, over the last 12 years, we've raised over $21 million for the nonprofit community. And it is, for many of our nonprofits, the biggest day of giving. It's their, their largest fundraiser of the year. So anyone that lives, gives, or uh, lives, 
uh, worked or plays in Park City um, has experienced the impact of our, our local nonprofits. So it's a really important time to show up and show support for our nonprofit community. Joel, is this your first uh, Live PC, Give PC? It is, and it's really exciting. It's amazing how much the town shows up. It's so great. Well, I think you're off to a good start. It's your first Live PC, Give PC, and you've already created a weather forecast for a nice clear day on Friday mm-hmm. uh, after a couple of days of snow in between. Um, Diego, la- and Diego, last week you talked about how the goal of Live PC, Give PC, in a sense, has changed from pure monetary to participation. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been doing it for 12 years now. And originally, the goal was to raise dollars for the nonprofits. And it still is one of the goals of the day. I think as we've done it more and we've gotten better at it, we realized we can build a broader tent and we can include more community members in the day of giving. Historically, philanthropy, uh, we've seen wealth participate in the day of giving. We've seen folks with affluence participate in the day of giving, and that still can be the case. Additionally, we want your community member that's using the trail every day and folks that are perhaps taking, uh, using the services of PC Tots, a nonprofit that takes care of our young ones in Park City, participating as well. So a minimum donation of $5 is how folks can participate in the day of. And instead of focusing on the money goal, as you mentioned, Roger, we want 6,500 participants joining us, 6,500 unique donors. And that could be you, Allison. That could be you, Roger. Your it family. will be. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> your family, your friends. Uh, one can support KPCW as well. Knowing that any kind of change is hard in any organization, and I think about, you know, this being the 12th year of Live PC, Give PC, you have a lot of partners. I think this year you have over 120, 160 organizations. How do you, how did you explain a change like that? You know, just change management. Did it, was the change made, you know, just after looking at one year? Is it something you guys thought about for a long time? How did it come about? Well, it was about three years ago that we said, well, you know, we've seen sustained year-to-year growth in the number of dollars, and it's tied to the number of donors. Whenever we have more donors at the table, the dollars follow. So it, it wasn't a hard sell for the organization to say, hey, let's involve more folks, encourage more people to come. And it's amazing what happens when somebody learns about the Day of Giving, learns about the over 120 nonprofit organizations participating, and perhaps are introduced to a new organization doing really meaningful work. So the goal of participation actually helps us raise more dollars too. So um, at the end of the day, whatever the amount, whatever the number of dollars we raise, it's an amazing day for the community and that's what we'll celebrate at the same time. We are we're getting more community members participating, which I think you know is sort of a virtuous cycle, right? You you create more awareness of your community. You're going to create more volunteers for the nonprofits, and you're going to create more of a sense of belonging in an in an era in which so so many people feel so disconnected from their communities. What what this day does and what the foundation does is is pretty extraordinary. Um, talk to us a little bit about how the how the money does work, right? Do the funds go directly to the non for profit? Can you explain that a little bit? 
Sure. Uh, contributors to go, can go on to livepcgivepc.org, and we have a giving website. We've partnered with an organization called Mighty Cause, and you can see the local nonprofits on that website. You click in, and you can make your donation. And the donation goes directly to the nonprofits. Um, don't get us wrong. Uh, we welcome the $10,000 donor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The more the merrier. But we also do want it to be a community event. So we want it to lower the, the bar and make sure everyone knows that November 4th is the day to participate. So it does all come down to a really successful platform and the platform can make it or break it for anything, whether it's auctions at events, fundraisers and everything else. So you have one platform, all the nonprofits have an access to the back end to be able to upload all their information. And as people donate, they're able to check out with their nonprofits with that, because the transactions are on credit card. How does that work? I mean, do we see a decrease in credit card charges? Is it a little bit less when the nonprofits receive it? Yeah, um, as any online platform, there are online fees. What we're seeing in recent years is donors be savvier and go to the nonprofit organization and hand deliver that $10,000 check and say, this is for LiveBC, GiveBC. We still count it towards today. And again, it takes a savvy donor to realize, oh, I can bypass some of the fees. The online platform, and we still recommend that that, that $10,000 donor give a $5 gift to the organization so they can count as a unique donor on the day and help that organization go up on the leaderboard as they are participating for additional prizes. But what we see is roughly, I mean, I, I would say that about half the dollars come in online and as the years progress and donors get savvier, about half the dollars come in offline. That's an interesting fact. Okay, so now you said something interesting. If I, uh, if Allison decides to write a $10,000 check on Friday, which I'm certainly anticipating, um, do I then send an email to the feder to, to, to you and say, hey, I want this to count for Live PC, Give PC, and does she count as both a, a dollar leaderboard person and a unique donor, or do you separately have to go through the platform to count? To count as a unique donor, you have to go through the platform. So okay. one email, one person, one unique donor. Okay. That's how we're going to get to the 6500 As for the monies, your dollar donation will count on the scoreboard on the day of. Okay. If you walk into an organization's office today and say, hey, I want to give you $10,000 for LiveBC, GiveBC, that organization can count it. Uh, I still recommend going online, giving $5 to help them on that leaderboard, and then go to the next organization and give another $10,000. And the good news will be that that $10,000, which will be specified to go to KPCW, will be the first part of our $100,000 goal, <laughs> which we have for this year's Live PC, Give PC. So along with all the other not-for-profits in town, we too are hoping to, to raise, some, raise some money through Live PC, Give PC. No, I, I appreciate it. And you totally threw me off with the next question with my... <laughs> okay, well, I got, I, I've got another question. Uh, you know, when I click on the website, it looks so easy. It's all so polished. But something tells me that this is kind of like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in the sense that you guys have been working on this for months. Talk to us a little about the work it takes to get Live PC, Give PC ready. 
the team at the Community Foundation really is amazing, and they've been working with local nonprofits for six weeks now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start with a, uh, a mandatory meeting. We bring everyone together to give them the nuts and bolts of how to uh, provide your information to the platform. We've held two webinars over the last six weeks. We provide one-on-one call-in support, and we've really built the trust with the local nonprofit community. Uh, so they're open to coming to us uh, for help, which is phenomenal. And as a relative newbie here, it is it is incredible to see. What we're hearing is that because of um, the stock market inflation, uh, overall giving tends to be about, uh, down about 17%. And costs for the nonprofit community are going up when you think about trying to keep up with wages, healthcare costs. You know, folks like you want to be able to... Uh, pay your employees well. You want to be able to send your kid to camp. Um, so this year is a really important uh, year for the community to step up. And the Park City community really, really does do it. So this year is an important year to get your friends, uh, get your family members, yourself, give, give, give. I remember what my question was. You've mentioned a couple of times leaderboard. Tell me what the significance is of the leaderboard and why I want to be on it. So the leaderboards encourage a little bit of friendly competition, I would say, uh, amongst the nonprofits. Yes, we are working together and we are collaboratively raising dollars. In fact, before I go into the leaderboards, I'll point out there's some nonprofits that are inviting folks to consider giving to other nonprofits they partner with, both in an email newsletter. I, I saw Summit Land Conservancy point at partners they work closely with, and I bet that some of their donors are being exposed to them for the first time. And also in their thank you emails. Thank you for giving. Please consider supporting this other nonprofit organization that we work with and is doing meaningful work here in Summit County. As far as the leaderboards, um, thanks to our sponsors, uh, our presenting sponsor for the day is Park City Mountain, Vale Epic Promise. We are able to dedicate $35,000 in prices to the nonprofits. So we make it a little enticing and exciting for folks to go out and find those unique donors to knock on doors and make calls and send emails and text messages to their friends to give to their favorite organization because that unique donor is what helps folks move organizations move up the leaderboard. That's how um, I'll say Mountain Trails has been really successful through the years. Uh, it feels that we all touch the trails in one way or another. So Mountain Trails has had the most unique donors. And um, there's other organizations that are always competing for those leaderboard prizes as well. And the Community Foundation is happy to provide the dollars for that. Live PC, Give PC coming up Friday. It's uh, Joel Zero's first appearance, and we want to make it a good one for him. So we really encourage the community to participate. Uh, uh, we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to the after uh, after uh, after raising celebration. Um, thank you for joining us, and we'll be reporting on the results next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.